Hello and welcome everyone to this special interview today. This is Jorge Rocha and it's just me today actually. I'll be manning the ship this episode. However, I am not alone because I am joined by Stephanie Gallardo, a Democratic Socialist running for U.S. Congress in Washington's 9th Congressional District. Welcome to the show, Stephanie. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here with you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Now, to those who are listening, can you tell them why you decided to run for Congress? Yeah, it's sort of a long-winded reason. I'll try to um, keep it it. a little bit short. Yeah, but so, okay. So, first of all, I'm an educator. I taught high school um, in a town south of Seattle called Tequila um, for the past um, five years. So first and foremost, at the beginning of everything, at the beginning of the reason why I decided to run for Congress is because I'm an educator and because Mm -hmm. I have seen, um, you know, what educators are going through, um, not only through the pandemic, but even prior to the pandemic in terms of funding of our public schools, lack of access to um, counselors and nurses for our young people um, and so many different reasons. And so that um the fact that i was like cultivating that understanding of what it actually um means to be a teacher in the society got me to um, become involved with my union um so i very randomly ran for a position um, on the board of directors for my state education association the washington education Mm -hmm. association and then i ended up um, really liking that job and really liking the opportunity to um, you know, work with folks from all over the state, including um, our congressional representatives. And so when I was elected to the board for my national teachers union, um, educators union, I should say, um, I started having regular meetings with our congressional delegation here in Washington state. And it was in January of last year <clears throat> that I had a virtual meeting with myself, um, the vice president of my union, as well as a couple other educators um, from our from our state and our union. Um, And we met with Representative Smith. And um, I, to be quite frank with you, was really shocked with um, the behavior that I saw him display. He was rude. He was cutting people off. He was interjecting. He wouldn't let women talk. And um, I was just really shocked by this, right? This is a congressional representative, also a representative that, um, you know, is elected to serve um, the most diverse community in Washington state. Um, And he's been in there for 24 years. And so that's kind of where I started. That's a long time. Yeah, exactly. It is way too long. And so after that conversation, I started to have this, you know, idea in my head, like, what if a teacher ran for this position? What if a union leader ran for this position? Um, You know, so many people along the way have told me that it's impossible, that you have to do it, you know, in this very specific way. But the way that I've been able to do it is um, by just really having conversations with my family, my community, um, my students, the people I've worked with. And that's how we've been able to get this um, my candidacy off the ground and actually something that's gaining some steam as of late. So that's kind of where things started. Excellent. And so uh, before we kind of get in, get into your, the person you're running against, Adam Smith, uh, the person who's the incumbent in the district, could you tell us, could you go a bit, bit more into detail as to your, how your experience being a teacher and being a union leader, how that informs your politics and the campaign you're running? 
Absolutely. So I, it's funny because I actually just submitted uh, my candidate statement for the Washington Voters Guide, and I am I, I'm going to share a story that I shared in my um, voter statement. Sure, go for it. So, um, it, my first month of teaching, my very first month of teaching, um, the way we entered into the school year um, was be, was a young person um, had been shot and killed a block away from our, my high school. So um, we started the year, you know, with trauma students who had lost a, a cousin, a friend. Um, and then a week later, we lost a student to cancer. And then a week after that, we lost another student um, to gun violence of a different sort. We lost him to um, suicide. And so, um, you know, yeah, it was it was a devastating time. And that was my first, you know, sort of entrance into the teaching profession. And immediately I noticed that um, this is your first year. My, my first month. Yeah, my first month. Oh, my goodness. And then, I mean, to even add on top of that. Uh, in November of that year was when Donald Trump was elected for the first time in 2016. <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> yeah, so it was really just this, um, you know, conglomeration of things that were happening all at the same time. And mind you, in an immigrant and refugee community, you know, these times were extremely scary for our community. Uh, people who were undocumented, um, students who were undocumented were fearful that they were going to get picked up by ICE the next day after President Trump was elected. Um, so there was a lot of fear going on. And it, it really shined a light to me that our public school system is not equipped um, to address the needs of our students, our families, our communities, our educators. Um, so, you know, that experience coming into education, um, the first month losing three students, um, I saw young people over those next several years that I was an educator um, develop serious mental health problems. Um, I saw their um, academic performance really drop because they didn't have the right resources been provided to them by the school. And in addition to that, you know, I I got really tired of having to pay out of pocket for things that I felt my school should have supplied for me. Um, I was supplying basic snacks for students, um, basic supplies, and it was always an answer um, that there just simply wasn't enough money to, to provide for any of the departments. I remember one year we got a history department budget with uh, $250 in it. Oh, my God. <laughs> Yeah. Is that for for the entire department? For the entire department of um, eight teachers. Holy shit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's just really unreasonable that the. the For the whole year. For the whole year. For the whole year. Oh my God. Extremely unreasonable. And, you know, it's really no wonder that educators are leaving the profession um, at extremely high rates, um, particularly educators of color who are pushed out of the field before they even arrive at five years of teaching. And so that's kind of the mentality that I entered this race with was that I wanted to seriously disrupt this narrative that um, only lawyers or only people who have a legal background can become Congress people. I actually believe that we need an educator in Congress, somebody who understands the public school system so that they can write policy accordingly. Wow. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think it is, well, one, it's not surprising, but it's, it's absolutely horrible. Uh, unusually so how this country treats teachers who, right. if 
And if you think about it just from a purely like a self-interested point of view, this country is run by capitalists. If they were interested in trying to perpetuate a, a work, uh, a working class, you would expect they would be able to, you know, be educated, but they don't they have no interest in that. But, exactly. but uh, that being said, uh, you know, so th- what you're kind of describing, it seems like you're, you're facing a lot of the different issues that are, they're facing America right now particularly in terms of uh, gun violence, but then also with respect to, say, healthcare and immigration and those who are refugees as well, and also racism and and, and uh, gender discrimination and other things on that, on that front. Right. So, you know, being, being a teacher, you're able to see the forefront of that. Uh, kind of just being a bit more topical, given how uh, right now we're still in the midst of a third year of a pandemic of a deadly virus and as well for another virus of this of mass shootings occurring especially in schools how how would you as a as a elected official try to keep teachers and students safe from both from both pandemic and mass and these mass shootings what would you try to do differently that has not been done in washington yeah absolutely so i think the first thing that you know when i think of gun violence and when i think of guns and how they are available um my the way that I feel and the way I know most people around me feel, they don't feel safe with guns around them, right? They don't feel safe. And when you try to imagine a community um, that feels safe, usually there's not guns around. There's also not police around usually in a, a community that feels safe because there's not a need for any police, right? Really, there are actually, I, I, I digress because there's, in my belief, not really a need for, for police in many situations, which was proven in. Mm-hmm. Um, but Aside from that, um, I think that something that has played a really detrimental role um, in the rise of this type of violence is that we are um, attacking education at at every level. You know, we've seen the rise of anti-critical race theory. We've seen the rise of, um, you know, book bannings and, um, you know, taking very important chunks of history out of the public school curriculums. And so I think that, you know, when we're considering what a safe community looks like, it is not one that um, tries to hide the truth from this, from students. I feel like when we do not provide not only history, but, you know, resources in, in a school community, um, it, it creates a, a system that is simply not safe for young people to grow and become, you know, fully formed human beings in. Mm-hmm. And I, personally can speak to that. I've seen the the progression of how um, young students will come in as freshmen in my high school um, and, you know, be really excited, ready to go for high school. And then, you know, a, a, a series of circumstances will happen and, you know, they will, you know, resort to, you know, violent means because they are not um, equipped and do not have the resources in order to, um, you know, di- direct that that attention or that um, behavior elsewhere. And so I really do think that, you know, fully funding public schools, um, while it may not seem like an immediate solution to many um, with regard to gun violence, I do think um, the underlying um, lack of funding for public schools right now is contributing to um, the fact that we're seeing violence rise um, all over the country and now um, in gun violence. I also think that um, something that we can do to keep um, students safe, um, we really, really do not need police in schools. Mm-hmm. Um, I have had several experiences in my public schools where we have um, an SRO, a student resource officer that's assigned to the school. And we know that um, 
when there's an SRO in the school, the students in that school are more likely to um, not be um, saved in any way by that police officer, but um, actually result in charges or violations or accumulating um, different penalties um, as a result of that police officer being in the school. And so I think if we're going to bring students to a place where they are um, feeling much more safe in school, um, it's going to be going to be because they were providing resources for them in that school rather than um, creating a place of fear, um, like with police officers. Yeah, absolutely. I, you're going to have no disagreement from me on that front. Um, <laughs> uh, but to kind of get into it a bit, bit more, you know, we'll, we'll touch on that in a second, but uh, before, since this is still on fresh in people's minds, can, can, can you tell us a bit more about this, the incumbent you're running against Adam Smith? Yes. So I am trying to talk about him as much as possible because he is one of those Congress members that um, flies under everybody's radar, but in reality has an exorbitant amount of power. And I mean, he's a chair of the Armed Services Committee, right? Yes, yes, he is. So his name is Representative Adam Smith. Um, he was elected to this position in 1997. Um, I was seven years old at that time. And he, uh, like you said, is the chair of the House Armed Services Committee. Um, it's a committee that he has sat on for his entire 24-year tenure as a, as a Congress member. Absolutely and, crazy. Um, <laughs> Yeah. And throughout that entire time period, he has also accepted um, funding from military contractors. Um, most notably, he accepted a ton of funding um, from Raytheon. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, so he is just an all around um, sort of fly under the radar um, wannabe progressive. And, you know, I say this word progressive because... <laughs> The word has just completely lost any meaning at this point, I think, um, mm -hmm. particularly with the fact that he um, is a Congress member in a district right next to um, the leader of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, Representative Jayapal. Mm -hmm. So I really feel like he has been able to sort of, um, you know, ride her coattails on the work that she's been able to do, um, co-sponsor right and left um, to the point where a co-sponsorship from him means absolutely nothing because there's no work behind it or actually champion, championing any of that legislation. Um, so he is progressive or, okay, not progressive. He, he makes fairly good policy decisions when it comes to domestic issues, but of course on foreign policy issues, mm -hmm. he is absolutely backwards, imperialist, um, contributing to violence all across the globe. And people do not understand that that's actually his role in Congress is to fund wars. Um, he just led the passage of the largest military budget in history at $778 billion. <sighs> <sighs> yeah, so I just wish I want people to pay attention to this race so much more because um, there is so much going on behind the scenes. And, you know, the Democratic Party has at every step of the way tried to undermine, um, you know, my campaign's, um, you know, success. And that's not on accident. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think I Glad you bring this up because it's. I find it interesting because on your on your platform on your website you have said and you, uh, online and also on your platform you have identified as an anti imperialist and have explicitly called for demilitarization uh, of the U.S. military in terms of how it presently exists as you wish to quote reduce our investment in a global imperialist and militarist agenda. How does 
your anti-imperialism inform your campaign and your politics, especially as you run against this, this congressperson? It is probably one of the most important things um, to me. And um, the other reason, aside from the, my students um, wanting me to run for this position, it is the other reason I believe that um, I really want to take this to the end and um, fight as hard as possible. So to give you some context that, you know, how did I arrive at these mm-hmm. sort of um, ideological understandings and political understandings? Um, my father was born in Chile. And um, for folks who don't know much about the history in Chile, um, there was a um, United States sponsored coup on the Allende administration. Mm-hmm. Um, Salvador Allende was the first um, democratically elected socialist president in Chile. Mm-hmm. And my my grandfather um, was actually a socialist city council member in the south south, south part of Chile. Mm. And um, so because of that, you know, my family essentially had to go into hiding for several years um, after my grandfather was kidnapped and put into a political prison camp for two and 11 months. Yeah. Under Pinochet, right? Under Pinochet. That's right. And so um, after my family was able to gain sponsorship from the International Rescue Committee to come here to the United States, um, we made our life here. But, you know, growing up, I was taught the lessons of, you know, what with what happened in 1973. We call it the other September 11th because it was September 11th, 1973. Right. And um, I remember hearing stories that my grandfather would tell about the torture. Um, my, my grandfather also um, became a poet and that was one of his ways of expressing himself through the trauma um, was to, um, you know, dictate poetry and also play the guitar. Um, so I definitely grew up with this understanding that my, um, identity of my family, the political identity that we come from is extremely important. And it also, um, you know, directed me to um, growing my knowledge about history and um, trying to understand at a deeper level why the United States um, plays this um, hero, but in reality is actually Mm -hmm. destroying so many countries all over the world. Um, So I think, you know, my background and, you know, the reason I decided to run for this position um, definitely is influenced by the fact that I come from a refugee family that was Mm -hmm. impacted by U.S. imperialism. Yeah, absolutely. And something we've talked about on this show uh, before, you know, an episode that we've released, I think prior to this, prior to this one or, or, maybe a few weeks ago was one that we had done about this book that was published uh, talking about that the CIA tried to assassinate Fidel Castro 634 times, which is to tell you how, how much uh, resources are spent in terms of trying to uh, do how to overthrow existing governments around the world. Um, But you know, what really stood out to me about your platform, uh, Stephanie is like you want to close all overseas military bases and including AFRICOM and AFRICOM, for those who don't know, is the Africa Command Center of the U.S. military and to lift all sanctions on civil societies. Is that right? Um, you know, I might actually have to look at that because that, it does not sound right. As a matter of fact, I, I don't think I, I said or, or at least I will have to go and reread what I wrote. OK, uh, I do not recall putting all of the U.S. military bases. Not that I'm against that. Um, mm. I just know that. If I'm going to say something like that, I have to provide a timeline, a plan, all of that. So, Oh, absolutely. I'm just talking about the, the goal here. 
Well, certainly I do think the goal um, long-term if we're to dream large is to um, live in a United States that doesn't have military bases all across the world. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, for the most part, what we know of military bases, um, especially even in our own um, home territory, you know, we look at Hawaii, we look at Puerto Rico, we look at all these different places that have been devastated by U.S. imperialism and military bases, mm-hmm. um, their their economies, their environment have been completely devastated by the pollution, um, the the planes, all of this stuff. Um, so mm-hmm. ultimately, certainly, I do think that that is a goal, and I don't think that should be like crazy or outrageous to say. Mm-hmm. I think folks are so invested in um, militarism that they don't even know what militarism is at this point. Absolutely, I definitely agree with that. Um, yeah. And- of course, if you're going to be U.S. Congress, no one's suggesting that you should try to put a bill clothing everything all at once. That's not how this works. Yeah. But, but uh, fact of the matter is, uh, I find that it's a quite quite interesting uh, uh, proposal that you have a, just labeled on, on, on as a pla- on your platform. But that being said, um, I also saw that you are for BD- the BDS movement. You're, you're in favor of the BDS movement. Do you believe Palestine should be free? Absolutely. Without question, I will I will throw down for Palestine until the end of time. And part of that is also because I have seen throw I have seen Palestinians throw down for communities in the same way Mm -hmm. that they hope that others will throw down for them. So there is just absolutely no question for me. Does Palestine Palestine deserve liberation? One hundred percent. Oh, yeah. Um, Now, elsewhere. Both on your both on your platform, but also on online, you have from what I've seen, you've done a good job of connecting and you're going to bring it back from something you mentioned earlier, connecting the role of American imperialism with domestic policing and the surplus of weaponry and guns in this country. How do you think that that this kind of this, this relationship is tied together? Like, uh, what do you what do you do you see? There's like a connection here, especially with like what you're saying about the incumbent Adam Smith that he supports some you know quote unquote progressive policies domestically, but then supports a, aggressive hawkish behavior abroad. Yeah. So I you know, have said time and time again, especially most recently after um, the mass shooting that happened in Texas, um, accepting money from um, the NRA, which all the Democrats right now are just, you know, yelling and screaming about the Republicans who accept money from the NRA. Um, They completely look past the fact that a large portion of Democrats accept funding from military contractors. And, you know, the thing about military contractors is that, um, I've looked at their websites, right? I've looked at Raytheon's website. I've looked at Boeing's website. I've looked at Lockheed Martin's website Mm -hmm. and they all do an amazing job at presenting themselves as like this innovative, um, you know, teaching, learning, you know, futuristic sort of thing. And and the reality is that, you know, they are building weaponry, they are building um, rockets, um, missiles, and things like that, all of which are used on um, predominantly um, poor nations, predominantly brown and black nations. And so um, when we, you know, are talking about um, trying to demilitarize or, you know, reduce um, the violence in our country. Um, Why can we only speak about it in our own country um, and then completely ignore it when, when talking about the rest of the globe? Um, And we, you know, we are 
the largest purveyor of violence um, in the entire globe, the United States is. Mm -hmm. um, and that is an undeniable fact. Like I, mm -hmm. I know that I don't have evidence to back that up right this moment, but I could provide you evidence at any single minute and it couldn't be refuted. No, I, I think that's absolutely correct. And uh, yeah, it's quite remarkable how all these Democrats who cry about the NRA, which of course the NRA is not some laudable organization. And from my point of view, it's a criminal organization that's like lobbying on behalf of those who make weaponry, but they have an issue with getting money from a lobbying organization, but they have no issue getting money from the people who make the weapons directly. They don't like the middleman. Exactly. exactly. Um, um, but, yeah. One other thing, sorry, I did rem I remember part, the rest of your question um, earlier. So, you know, one thing that we have to also look at when we're talking about weapons um, and the police is um, who is trained where. So the Seattle police actually, um, they are trained by the Israeli military, um, mm -hmm. by the IDF. And so they learn their tactics that the Israeli army, you know, uses to terrorize Palestinians. Um, and so it's actually not a shock that mm -hmm. the Seattle police are, um, one of the police departments in the, in the country with, you know, the most, um, complaints against their staff members. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's definitely a connection between, you know, um, local policing and this larger apparatus that we're talking about, um, with regard to violence and imperialism. Yeah, absolutely. It's one, one large interconnected system that you can't, you can't separate. That's, that's, that's great. Um, now, that being said, do you support defunding the police? Yes, I do support <laughs> defunding the police. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things that I also wrote in my voters pamphlet just a minute or just a week ago um, was that we we spend 54 percent of our discretionary federal spending on defense. Um, less than six percent of that goes to education. <laughs> and so to me, it's just I cannot continue to rationalize that the the federal government would prefer to bomb children around the world mm -hmm. um, as opposed to funding education for children here on our, on our own land. And so, you know, I, I absolutely think that we need to defund the police because we can redirect those sources elsewhere, um, right. namely providing counselors and nurses um, for public schools. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, in the long term, of course, I'm just talking about say one day to the next. But what do you think about this call people have had, this more radical call of like say, uh, eventually abolishing police and prisons altogether? Yeah, I, I also identify as an abolitionist. Um, mm -hmm. I think you know I've been trying to come to a, a, a better understanding of um, what that transitional space can look like. Mm -hmm. um, I but at the same time, like I. I'm only one individual and a, mm -hmm. a conversation towards abolition requires, um, you know, collaboration with so many different people. Um, and I do think if we're going to, um, you know, achieve a fully abolitionist society, um, it's going to take serious um, mass mobilization and modern upheaval, upheaval as like we've never seen before. Yeah, absolutely. And it's definitely a much, much longer struggle. And it's a, uh... I think the way I've, I've heard it be framed is that abolitionism is a framework um, of viewing problems. But that being said, let's talk about climate a bit. Uh, what's your vision when you, when you, when you now people have different ways to kind of imagine this, but what's your vision of what, what you describe as a green new deal? 
Yeah. So for me, the, what I feel is the most critical part of the Green New Deal um, has to be the federal jobs guarantee. Mm-hmm. Um, because the federal jobs guarantee, what that does mm-hmm. um, is it makes sure that not only do we have enough hands to be able to get the job done of um, transitioning from fossil fuels to renewable resources, um, but it also makes sure that those people are well paid, mm-hmm. um, that they are, um, you know, not having to quit a job and then have like a super long period in the middle where they're not getting paid. Um, so it is, I believe, um, the most immediate thing that we can do in order to um, drastically reduce, um, you know, climate change, the federal jobs guarantee for for certain. Mm-hmm. And what do you think about nationalizing the uh, the energy industries? Do you think Absolutely. that would be necessary? I, I absolutely. Yeah. Because, you know, I look all over the world and I see nothing but industries that are being taken over um, or resources that are being take, taken over by corporations and CEOs. We've seen um, Coca-Cola in Mexico. Um, we've seen, you know, soda company, companies all, all over the world that are, you know, accessing um, rivers of indigenous people. Um, so, you know, I think we absolutely need to start taking um, a deeper look at um, these things. Wonderful. Um, so kind of moving in terms of a kind of what we we're talking about in the beginning about how a lot of different communities and different uh, uh, groups of people are being uh, terrorized in this country. Queer and trans people are under attack in this country at this moment. How can you, uh, being in office, assure justice for these people and protection, given that they're, especially for those who are, who are trans, but of course then the trans trans people are being used as a wedge of trying to then open up and push back against all this progress that's been made for people who are gay and who are lesbian, who are bisexual. Right. So there's a couple of things that um, I think can put us in a position where we can um, protect and, you know, actually serve um, trans folks and queer folks in this country. Um, the first thing is I think we have to um, expand the Supreme Court um, from the amount of justices there are now to, you know, 14, 15 or 16. And the reason that I think that this is going to be super critical to um, queer folks in this country um, is right now we know that there is a conservative majority mm-hmm. um, and these folks are in there for a lifetime. Right. right. So we definitely need to, um, you know, pack that court way more so that the folks who are making those decisions, um, specifically related to um, queer and trans rights can make decisions that benefit them. But in, in more of a long-term vision um, that most people think is crazy, but I think is, you know, the, the first place where we have to start dreaming and and acting towards Mm -hmm. um, is I think we have to have a complete rewrite of the United States constitution um, because it shouldn't be in, in the year 2022 that queer and trans people are not protected by our constitution. Yeah, no, I think I completely agree with that. Uh, that's, I think the DSA's national platform in 2021 had that as a, its, its maximal uh, demand of wanting a second constitutional convention. And it's a conversation we should be having in terms of what is it that we eventually want to be doing? But um, because just because it's not things like that need to be explicitly stated. I think here in New York state, and I'm not sure of the case in what it is in Washington, but New York state, we, and kind of going towards this next question I'm going to ask is that we enshrined into the state constitution, uh, the right to have an abortion, which, and that happened in 2019, which is insane. 
but mm-hmm. kind of kind of you know this proceeding this next question is about roe v wade you know what do you what do you what do we do in your opinion given this likely decision you know and what what would do you do you support codifying roe v wade into law nationally as a, as a someone in office but suppose that if if you're in office and then you're not able to move forward how do you imagine kind of pass, pass, pushing this through because i feel this is too big to just um to just let let, let go Yeah, Um, I do believe that we should codify Roe v. Wade into law. And, um, you know, what I mentioned earlier is that if we're going to see change in this country, it's going to come from mass mobilization. Mm -hmm. And um, we also know that when politicians do anything um, on the the floor of the House of Representatives or in the Senate, it is because their constituents pushed them. And it is because their their constituents honestly did all of the labor for them um, Mm -hmm. in order for them to arrive at the at the proper decision, um, if it is the proper decision at all. Mm -hmm. Um, So I really do believe that, you know, if we're if we are going to um, not only codify this into law, but, um, you know, create um, more opportunity for access to um, abortion service, abortion care, health care in general, um, we have to uh, absolutely undertake mass mobilization of communities. And we also, you know, can't look to like these liberal NGOs like Planned Parenthood or like, Mm -hmm. um, you know, these other NGO sort of things that um, are continuing to support Democrats who have had decades um, to do something about codifying Roe and um, at this point haven't. Um, So we have to question, you know, what are the behind the scenes or ulterior motives of these organizations, um, especially when they keep choosing to work with Democrats who are are completely um, at a standstill. Yeah. And also I feel like voters who do care about this, which is a lot of people, especially in a ninth congressional district of washington that that they really do care about this fact that roe v wade will be overturned since it's such a heavily democratic district yeah do who do do you think voters will trust the incumbent that can't or doesn't have to worry about this or has never had to worry about this or someone who has had to worry about this it's really funny it is really funny with him because um i think lately he's been trying to sort of get in front of things and mm-hmm. do things that he would have never done before if he didn't have a um, right. really strong opponent. Um, but right after Roe v. Wade, he came out with a, an event that, um, you know, was hosting a conversation um, related to um, abortion services in our in our district. And this is something that I've never seen him do before. And he also just last week did um, a town hall, the first town hall he's done in years, <laughs> <laughs> literal years, literal years. And so, like, I just think of him right now as somebody who um, is trying his best to um, placate people long enough for him to maintain their vote. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Um, So I'm kind of curious about your opinion on this. Uh, So in Seattle and in Seattle, most of Washington, but Seattle particularly, they're you're the headquarters of some of the biggest names in tech. What, what, what's your stance on big tech, especially with like Amazon and, and Microsoft, you know, one, one who the former richest man in the world, and then now the on and off richest man in the world who are the owners of these companies. Um, well, <laughs> how do I say this without saying it? Um, I hate them. <laughs> <laughs> 
I absolutely hate them. And I really think that they have um, been a detriment to our city. Um, I have lived here in Seattle my entire life. Um, I've also lived in all different parts of the city. So I, mm-hmm. I've been able to, to watch as it's grown um, for better and for worse in um, lots of areas, in particular, um, the central district and the south end of Seattle, which is a predominantly um, black and also, if you move a little further south, um, Latino neighborhood. And what we've seen since uh, Amazon and Google and um, who else is here? Starbucks, um, since their rise, we've just seen gentrification and displacement at a mass level. Um, And we've also seen the housing market just completely become um, unattainable for anybody who's working class in this, in this city whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Um, So they've just served a detrimental, um, you know, impact on our, on our, on our systems. And I absolutely think we should be fighting tooth and nail against them at every Mm -hmm. step of the way. They've also, um, you know, attempted every single year to um, fund um, specific opponents in the elections. Um, Also against, uh, you know, one of uh, the people who I respect most in the world, um, council member Shama Sawant here in the, Seattle City Council. Um, Amazon has gone after Shama Sawant every year she's right. run. And so far they've lost. So I mean, there was a really, really strong recall campaign and she still managed to, I mean, that was, that was very close, which, you know, fortunately they failed in recalling her, but yeah. it, it goes to show how they're so adamantly against that. So it kind of goes towards, so I guess before I ask this other question, I, I am kind of curious what would you say then is the stance of, of many people, you know, and the people you've like, just ordinary common folk who are live in Seattle, like what is the stance that they have towards say people like, like say companies like say Microsoft or Amazon or Starbucks who are who have wor- world famous, you know, multinational corporations, extremely wealthy and and um, people and the people who own them are are some of the wealthy people in history. And yeah. uh, what what is the sentiment most people have towards them that you've encountered? Because I, I could imagine some people saying, "Well, I mean, sure, they're, they're they're very rich, or you know, they're yeah, sure, people are being displaced, but they've also created a lot of jobs." I could imagine some people saying that. What has been your your experience talking talking to people about this? Yeah, I think it really depends on who I'm talking to. And so the people that I've heard that are really supportive of tech and really excited about the, you know, innovation that's been happening in the city um, are tech transplants. So they come Mm. here, um, they live in a very specific region of downtown Seattle. They're not from Seattle. They're not from Seattle. (laughs) Not from Seattle. And recent within like the last two to five years here in Mm. Seattle. Um, but if you talk to like somebody who's lived here for their whole life and understands, um, the, you know, the, the changes that we've seen, they're definitely against the way that, um, it has impacted our city. Mm -hmm. Um, I also, you know, I should, I can't believe it's taken me this long to mention them, but, um, the union organizers here in Seattle who Mm -hmm. are um, working under Starbucks, working under Amazon, like right now we are seeing the rise, um, a historical rise in the labor movement um, Mm -hmm. for a reason. And it is because, um, Jeff Bezos and because, um, I don't know who the CEOs of Starbucks is right now, but, um, because they are, you know, totally treating their workers, um, without respect and without the actual, um, you know, things they deserve in the workplace. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I think 
that the workers, um, along with people who have lived here for the whole, whole entire lives, um, are really rising up against the companies. Yeah, it's truly inspiring union activities happening, um, especially when with two companies that no two companies that people for years and years have said that will never happen. There'll be never union organizing, which is in, you know, with Amazon warehouse workers and also with a barista. No one thought that people that that could have happened yet. Here we are. And, and after both, both uh, workers in both of those companies have been unionizing. Um, so I guess to kind of transition uh, a bit more bigger picture is like, what so you you identify as a democratic socialist you are endorsed you're a seattle dsa endorsed candidate what does socialism mean to you yeah so um you know i allude alluded earlier to um you know growing up with this influence from my grandfather and my father um who were socialists in chile mm-hmm. and um you know, when I was growing up and hearing these stories about, you know, government, the structures, what was going on in Chile at the time, I never interpreted it through a political lens because, you know, this was my family telling me these stories. Mm-hmm. Um, only after probably high school did I start to connect the dots and um, really be able to understand our, our experience and my family experience um, for what it was. And, oh, actually, I think I lost my train of thought. Can you remind me the question? The question was, what does socialism mean to you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so um, I started to understand socialism when I got to college and, you know, of course, did, you know, more reading and understanding of, um, you know, the history of socialism and then was able to connect it with, you know, what happened with our version of, of socialism in Chile. And, um, you know, since then, I, I also have had, I guess, a, a new rebirth in the last two years. Um, I joined Seattle DSA in um, 2020 mm-hmm. during the George Floyd uprisings. Okay. Um, yeah, that was the time where I I saw DSA members um, out in the streets like they were, you know, definitely throwing it down um, in protests. And so I, you know, wanted to be a part of that. I wanted to to join into a movement. Um, and, you know, join with folks who have this, uh, socialist lens with everything that they do. Mm -hmm. Um, So for me, I think socialism is not only like a political identity, but it's also a familial identity for me. Mm -hmm. And that's really hard to explain to a lot of people because it's very much a part of like my, my history and my ancestry. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I wish I could explain that better, but (laughs) Yeah. It's, I mean, it seems like you were born into it, right? It's like you, yeah. yeah, which, which is a very real thing. Uh, you know, socialism has been around for a long time, but, uh, at least in this country, it's rare for people to hear that. But, um, that being said, uh, kind of going to like this last question. Uh, so how will you being elected to office? And this is, this is the question I have. And also some of my co-hosts have, and, uh, who we would have to anyone who's running for office who identifies as a socialist, how would you being elected to office advance us closer to socialism? Ooh, you know, nobody's asked me this yet. And I wonder why. Um, well, I mean, I want to give you like the most immediate policy answers, but I feel like 
that would be too easy. Mm -hmm. I'm very much a um, like big picture sort of thinker. Mm -hmm. And so I think the way that I could help us best advance um, towards a socialist society um, is by simply walking, talking and acting at not acting, walking, talking and being a socialist um, in my everyday practice as a politician. Um, I think, you know, giving more visibility to socialism in our city um, is going to have a long-term impact. And, you know, I, I think over time will, um, you know, help folks in the community see that socialism is um, not what our history books here in the United States have sold it to us as. Um, and that, you know, the fact that the government works so hard against it should really put us on to, um, you know, why we need to invest in it deeper, right? Um, so I think, you know, definitely, um, in addition to, you know, the most immediate policies of, um, you know, nationalizing industries, um, you know, bringing us um, towards the Green New Deal, um, you know, anyways, like policies, but I, I, I feel that I can better contribute um, in a more holistic way for socialism, if that makes sense. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, where can people find you and, and find more about the campaign? Um, yes. So my website is um, www.electgallardo.com and all my social medias um, are electgallardo at electgallardo. Excellent. And we'll be sure to put the links in, uh, in, the, in the show notes, but it was such a pleasure talking to you, uh, Stephanie, and hope you win. I think you're going to win. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great talk. All right. Wonderful. Thank you. 